we've created a special offer just for listeners of the podcast. You can get the book, A World of Creativity, for a special price of $5.98 for paperback. And the Kindle version is only 99 cents. Go to mark-stinson.com to take advantage of this special offer. Tap into your most original thinking, organize your ideas, and create the opportunities to launch your creative work. Unlocking your world of creativity with best-selling author and brand innovator, Mark Stinson. Welcome back, friends, to our podcast, Unlocking Your World of Creativity. And certainly on this podcast, we've had no shortage of provocative subjects, but none is more provocative than our subject today. What if I told you Shakespeare was a woman? You would say, what a heresy. Elizabeth Winkler has written a book with that title, and we're going to explore that and some other heresies that she's uncovered in writing the book. Elizabeth Winkler is a journalist and book critic. Her work has appeared in the Wall Street Journal, the New Yorker, the New Republic, and many more. Her book, Shakespeare Was a Woman and Other Heresies, How Doubting the Bard Became the Biggest Taboo in Literature. It's just released from Simon & Schuster. Elizabeth, welcome to the program. Thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to talk about the book with you. Yes, congratulations on its release. Thanks. Yeah, big day. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. I think we just need to jump right in to this investigation that you have been about. And that is the Shakespeare authorship question. It's lingered throughout history, but it has its roots in controversies about whether Shakespeare produced his own work or not. But what did you find and what's the premise of your book? I really wanted to understand why this question is so hard to talk about and why it generates such emotional and often furious reactions in people. Because on the face of things, it's just a literary historical question about the authorship of 400-year-old plays, nerdy, kind of academic, but people get really worked up about it. And I discovered that four years ago, I published an article in The Atlantic about one of about a new candidate for authorship, and it went viral and people were, they loved it or they hated it. And I was trying to process the reactions to it. So this book is really about It's about the whole history of the authorship question. It's part literary history. It's also a work of journalism because I go around and I interview Shakespeare scholars as well as skeptics to lead the reader through this messy, mad mystery. It was so much fun to do. I guess I should explain a little bit about the author question for those who don't know. That'd be great. Yeah, a lot of thinkers and writers over the centuries have suspected that Shakespeare was a pseudonym for a concealed writer. And pseudonyms were pretty common in Renaissance England. There were a lot of reasons writers might choose to conceal their identity. A lot of people have suspected that this was the case with with Shakespeare. Henry James said, I'm haunted by the conviction that the divine William is the biggest and most successful fraud ever practiced on a patient world. Walt Whitman, the poet of democracy, agreed that there was some other mind behind the plays. Mark Twain said, as far as anybody can prove, Shakespeare of Stratford-upon-Avon never wrote a play in his life. And he made fun of the Shakespeare biographers, saying they had built up the story of Shakespeare's life with conjectures and inferences, and that it was, an he called it an Eiffel Tower of artificialities rising sky high. Vladimir Abakov wrote a poem about the mystery, saying to Shakespeare, you easily regretlessly relinquished the laurels, concealing your monstrous genius beneath a mask. 
So it's a fascinating question. It's involved, it's drawn in psychologists, sociologists, historians, theater makers, Supreme Court justices, interestingly, have really been drawn to this subject because it has to do with evidence and how you evaluate evidence. So a number of Supreme Court justices have concluded that they don't think he was the author. (laughs) But in English literature departments, that question does not really exist. You're not allowed to pursue the question. There's no research into the subject. Shakespeare wrote Shakespeare. Shakespeare's the god of English literature. You do not question this. You don't go there. And to me, that's just fascinating, that taboo. Because if you look at the evidence, and I try to lay this out in the book, it's pretty clear that there's at least a question. It's at least a reasonable, it's something worth asking. So the fact that this is so touchy for people, I want to understand why. How did doubting Shakespeare become so taboo? And it's almost like a moral problem for people because he is this god figure. It's immoral to question Shakespeare. There's actually a scholar in one of Britain's great Shakespeare scholars in Stratford-upon-Avon, who I interview in the book a few years ago, he said, it is immoral to question history and take credit away from William Shakespeare of Stratford-upon-Avon, which is just a hilarious statement because immoral to question history inquiry is the very basis of the historical discipline, isn't it? So it's a really funny topic, surprisingly funny, just because people get so ridiculous about it. Yes. And these closely held beliefs, like you said. But it's interesting, you also, as you're describing some of these interviews and some other journalism and investigative journalism that you've undertaken, it does go beyond the scholar or the teacher's lounge to have this debate. I think about the court case that you referenced in 1964 of someone who died and left a third of her inheritance to find to the Francis Bacon Society to find some of these manuscripts. This kind of dig deep thought process that you went through. Yeah, it is the it is the biggest mystery in the history of English literature, I think, who wrote the works of Shakespeare. And so naturally people get drawn into it and they especially get drawn into it when they realize that a lot of what they've been taught about Shakespeare or what they thought about Shakespeare is pretty shaky and rests on imaginative conjecture over the years that scholars have built up to try to explain how these works were written. And when you start scratching the surface, you realize, oh my gosh, there's so much we don't know. And so many things that even the greatest scholars of Shakespeare can't explain about the works, about how they came to be written. Um, So that just makes it this, people get drawn into it because they feel like they're in a life detective story trying to figure it out. And that's part of the attraction of it. But it also is because I think it it ends up being about bigger things even than Shakespeare, although Shakespeare's so big. How can you say there's something bigger than Shakespeare? <laughs> it's really about the problem of history, which is how we know what we think we know about the past. It's about the problem of authority, of who has the authority to determine the truth about the past and these contesting versions of history that you get. And it's about the nature of belief, which applies to so many topics. Well, it does. And I'm glad you brought this up because I did. I was interested in this, the larger problem of historical truth right? Even at our family dinner tables or holiday gatherings, you're reminiscing about something and one of your family members says, that's not the way it happened at all. Or you're in a cross-generational group and somebody says, remember this event in history? And you go, I was there and that's not how it happened at all. And there is this bias towards subjectivity, towards what one believes really happened. And if you weren't there, then you might disagree. 
Yeah, it's the problem of arriving at objective historical truth about anything to do with the past, because history is the accumulation of little pieces of evidence that we find and put together and so much is missing and it's about how it's interpreted and it's interpreted differently by different people at different points in time, isn't it? So our accounts of the past change and they get rewritten as we discover more things or as new scholars come along and take the same evidence we've had and interpret it differently or bring their own perspective to the interpretation of the past. So history is not a static thing. It's constantly changing. It's constantly evolving. The things that we thought we knew about the past get get revised. I think about something like Thomas Jefferson and his relationship with his slave, Sally Hemings. And for years, historians rejected the notion that he fathered children by his slave because Thomas Jefferson, father of the Declaration of Independence, we can't, that's too much. Don't want to say that. DNA evidence now proves that he did, and there's a whole, at Monticello, his home, there's a whole exhibition about it. This is just the nature of historical research and historical truth. It does change, but people have a really hard time letting go of the history that they first learned and the one that they believe in. And when someone comes along and says, that might not be the case, something's wrong here, they really hold tight and try to defend. It's it's an interesting psychological phenomenon too, ultimately the way people dig in and try to defend the version of history that they like and they became attached to and new ones feel threatening. Yes. Terrific. My guest is Elizabeth Winkler. She's the author of a brand new book just released, Shakespeare Was a Woman and Other Heresies. Elizabeth, in addition to the subject of the book and the details of the stories, I also wanted to talk, and in this podcast, we like to discuss process and how the book developed for you and Everything we're talking about now, about how we maybe reinforce our own truths. Did you come up with this premise of the book and then go out and find evidence? Or did you say, I have a question about this and I want to gather the bits and the stories and then see what comes out? I'm just curious as how the trail of the process worked for you. I had studied Shakespeare as an English literature student in college and graduate school, I had heard that there was a question about the authorship, but I really didn't pay much attention to it. I studied the plays like most students do. And the question, the authorship question wasn't discussed in my classes. I didn't even think about it. And then years later, there's been so much revising of history happening in our culture, whether it's African-American history, women's history, the history of the South in this country. And I was really interested in, I remembered that there, there was this question about the authorship and I wanted to understand it was possible that great minds like Henry James, Mark Twain, Walt Whitman, Vladimir Nabokov, Supreme Court justices, why did they doubt Shakespeare? So I started, I just started reading about it. And the moment you pick up, there are a lot of books on this topic, most of them pretty academic and hard to access if you're just a general reader, but you get drawn in very quickly because the problems with the evidence are so profound and so truly jaw-dropping that it really sucks you in. And I just couldn't believe it. And I know this is the experience that other people have had too, when you're, it's just unbelievable. And you're shaking your head and wondering how is this not addressed in English literature or history departments? And I wrote the Atlantic article four years ago, was Shakespeare a woman, which was just about a new candidate for the authorship. And it was because that article was so explosive. And I was, a lot of people loved it, but then a lot of people also attacked me for it. And it was a really dark time for me, actually, when that came out, because it was hard. I had never experienced as a writer coming under such public attack before. That's a that's an uncomfortable experience. And your first instinct is to just shut off the Internet, Twitter, 
run away from it, distance yourself. And I did that for a little bit. But then I realized these reactions were so interesting. Why were they so emotional? Why was a literary historical problem being framed as a moral issue? And it was almost like these attacks were planting signs that said, dig here. And it made me want to investigate further and understand what is really going on here that people don't want me to look too closely at. It was a risky thing to decide that I was going to make a book out of this, that there was a book here, because I knew I'd be attacked all over again for writing this book. <laughs> I have no doubt. So this brings it back around. Yeah. But I just had to put that aside, put those external voices aside and decide that I was going to write about this because I thought it was interesting. It, I thought it was true and interesting and therefore worthy of a book. So that was a, it was a sort of a personal journey, I suppose, I had to go on as a writer to come to that position and not worry. Of course, I still worry about the feedback, but just put that aside and write something because this is a worthwhile topic and it's fascinating and I think readers will enjoy it. So you want to talk more about the process, my research? Yeah. And I think picking up there is there was certainly a lot of, when you think about investigative journalism, there's a lot of mundane, secondary searching and records and references and so forth. But in your case, a lot of personal connections, a lot of interviews, a lot of networking to find groups with various points of view here. What were some of those as you were making, again, the personal connections as you were going from interview to see what these schools of thought were? Some of them were Shakespeare scholars who I'd read their work and they were very famous in their fields. And I wanted to talk to them because I didn't think I could, I can't write a book about this without taking it to the scholars. I set up interviews with them. In some cases, there's one scholar who tries to get out of meeting with me and bails on the evening before our interview. He tries to, to cancel. And so there was a lot of sort of persuasion I had to use to get some of these people to talk with me. And I said, look, if you don't like my questions, you can chuck your tea at me. I won't complain. And sometimes you use humor and just a personal touch to reach people because ultimately it was silly to say he's he was being a coward, essentially, trying to, it was like, come on, this is Shakespeare. No one's life is at stake. No one's losing their rights. Let's just sit down and talk about this. And we ended up having that. Sir Stanley was a professor in Britain and we had a two hour interview. Other people ref did refuse to meet with me, but so part of this book is also about the struggle and the way the professors tend to be very shut down and closed off about the question. And one thing I had to decide to do in the book was what do I make of those rejections of the people who wouldn't talk to me? And I realized that was part of the story that I put them in the book. They're obstinacy and their sort of closed positions on this you know and i think they thought that by refusing to talk to me they wouldn't be implicated yes but they're in there <laughs> with their rejections. Well, i don't care if you don't talk to me you're still making the book <laughs> yeah um one of them left wrote correspondence wrote letters with uh the supreme court justice john paul stevens the late justice john paul stevens and so even though he wouldn't and even though this professor, James Shapiro, wouldn't speak with me, I had access to his correspondence with a Supreme Court justice. And so I went to the Folger Shakespeare Library in D.C. and I read that and it's in the book. And so his voice is very much there. He didn't escape entirely. <laughs> <laughs> then other people, you there's a whole world of uh, it's like this weird underworld of people who are fascinated by this subject. And when you research it and you start reading books, and you discover YouTube videos and conferences that they have, you just get to know that community. So I just started having conversations with people, exchanging emails, 
reaching out to them. And eventually I set up these interviews where in one, I go and interview Alexander Waugh, who's the grandson of the great English novelist, Evelyn Waugh. And he's one of the sort of leading skeptics in Britain today who believes Shakespeare was a pseudonym for another author. And there's a whole chapter where I spend with him in his country house in, uh, in England. And it's he's quite a character, really funny. And he pulls no punches. He just lets loose on the scholars and what he <laughs> perceives to be their total uh, idiocy, I guess. On this topic. It's, he's pretty entertaining. Another person is Mark Rylance, Sir Mark Rylance, who is the famous, famous actor. And then he was also former artistic director of the Globe Theatre in London. People, I'm trying to think what people might know him from. He's been in so many Hollywood movies lately. But oh, he's, I don't know, Wolf Hall. He uh, plays Thomas Cromwell in Wolf Hall. That might be mm-hmm. what people most recognize. And he, he's, a, he's de- devoted his life to Shakespeare as an actor and a director. And he also believes the plays were written by another person or group of people. He takes more of a collaborative view of the plays, that they were written collaboratively. And he was very happy to talk. And so you just reach out to these people. And a lot of them are excited to share their views and their theories about the authorship. And people want to have their, often they want to have their voices heard. And so unless they think a journalist is going to undo them in some way or their weaknesses, their sort of nonsense in their thinking, those are the people who try to avoid you. Other people really want you to tell their story for them. And they're happy to have someone come and sit quietly and ask them questions and give them a platform. That's so right. It was fun to go around and have all those conversations. And it becomes this journey for the reader through different theories. And I let you, I introduce you to the different theories and let the reader make up their mind about who they think the author was. And I'm not, I'm actually not arguing that it was a woman or that it was this particular person or that particular person. It's about all the heresies and the difference that have been proposed over the years. Very Let good. the reader decide what they think That's happened. That's right. And you mentioned a minute, moment ago that most of these books are at a very academic level, but you chose to take a more general reader, really try to bring in maybe the layperson, the mass reader, instead of only the academics. Yeah. What did you think that the rest of us, I'll say, could benefit from reading this book and learning about these controversies? There hadn't really been a book for the general, like a trade book for the general reader on this topic. And I thought that was a big hole, basically, in the literature on this subject. And a lot of them are, yeah, they're written in a maybe a very academic way or not just not super, but the thing is that this is fundamentally a mystery. It's a detective story. And so the narrative structure that it lends itself to is inherently very gripping. If you just, if you use the mystery that's already built into this question to structure a story, you have a page turner. So I think people just have, people just haven't found the right format perhaps or structure the biggest thing for me with this book was figuring out how to structure the narrative because it is a lot of information it's about a lot of history and literary discussion and going over several centuries and it's a massive information but I put myself in the narrative that was the main thing I did to lead the reader through it so I'm taking you on this journey as I go around and interview people and as I explain the whole sort of mad terrain. So I'm leading the reader through it and you have a voice that you can grab onto and it makes it more personal and more intimate and more fun rather than 
a really distant third person impersonal narrative voice. And I, I use the techniques a little bit of thrillers, not, I don't know if I should say thrillers, but suspense techniques where mm -hmm. I let the reader know that this interview is coming up and they are excited about it. And then I move back into history for a little bit. You have to eat your vegetables first before you come back to the fun stuff. Yes, um, They have to know, they have to know this information to fully appreciate what's happening in the interview. And then I bring them back. So it's weaving things back and forth and playing with the reader and keeping them wanting more. Very good. It's a terrific book and I look forward to now seeing it in print. And I know you're excited that it's out there. Now, speaking of interviews, now the tables are turned. You're being interviewed. You're doing your book tours. You're doing radio podcasts like this, uh, print reviewers. How does it feel to be on the other side of the microphone and notebook? It feels very odd indeed. I, have to <laughs> I like being in control of an interview and being the one asking questions. It's also helpful to understand, you know, the dynamics of an interview then and you know what to be wary of. But I hope it's fun to talk about the book. It's fun to share it with people. Yes, indeed. And what's next for you? Is there anything else that you're beginning to formulate or think about even beyond the Shakespeare book? Right now, I'll be doing book events and here in LA, New York, DC, and various interviews, sharing the book, talking about it. What's next? I'll probably continue writing essays and articles for now. I'll go back to something a little bit more low-key. It's an intense experience to work on a book for a couple of years. So I look forward to stepping back from that for a little bit. But I I do want to write another book because it was such an amazing experience. You grow so much as a thinker and a writer when you're just, you're really on your own sort of groping in the dark because no one can tell you how to write a book. Every book is different. You can study the writers that you love. And I did that. I really looked to the journalists who have written works similar, I think in a similar sort of genre or style to mine. My favorite journalist is Janet Malcolm. And I really used her as a sort of guiding light. But no one can tell you how to write your book. Even your editors can't tell you. So you really are on your own. And you have a lot of dark periods that you go through. And you just have to trust that you're, you're, you are going to get through them. And of course, there's all the challenges of the writing process and getting stuck in a certain chapter or section and how you work your way through that. And you learn to trust yourself and amazing things come out of it. You have to dig so deep that you write things that you didn't know you were capable of writing and you come up with ideas that you didn't know you had about this subject because you're in it and it's simmering in your head all the time. And I just learned so much about the book writing process that I now I'm excited to do it again. Yeah, fantastic. <laughs> And leave us with some inspiration or encouragement for the writers who are out there in the audience working on a book like yours, where they've been putting all the pieces and all the evidence and all the references and interviews together and say, wow, this seems a little overwhelming. How do we get over that hump and still get the work out into the world? It is so overwhelming when you compile all that information. There's so many stages of organization. You have a chapter outline to begin with, and you have some a sort of structure to organize all the research you've done. But inevitably, at least in my case, I found the structure changes, the chapters get moved around as you're working on it. And that's okay. That's just what happens. You, As you're doing it, you realize this needs to go here, that needs to go there. And it keeps evolving and shifting. And that can be stressful, but that's just part of the process. The most important thing I think I found odd learning how to get up from my desk and walk away from the screen when I'm stuck because you can really punish yourself sometimes just trying to work through a part of a chapter that's just you can't get it right it's not coming you're stuck you don't know 
what's wrong and you keep going over and over and you won't, don't want to let yourself get up from your chair until you've got it right. But then I would get up, I would go for a walk or go for a run, do something totally mindless. And somehow it's this amazing thing that when your body moves, your mind starts moving too in a different way. And psychologists have actually done studies of this, why so many writers are walkers, because something about moving your body just helps like your mind shift gears. And I would somehow the problems would work itself out in my head as soon as I just got away from my desk and did something else. And it's really, it was almost miraculous. I love that, that I can rely on that. I know that if I just take a breather, walk away, do something active, do get out of your head and be in your body again, because you get so detached sometimes from your physical world when you're writing and something loosens up and the, and the knot undoes itself. So that's an important thing for writers to remember, I think. Yeah, thanks for sharing your experience. We really appreciate it. Congrats again on the book. And listeners, you can follow Elizabeth and her work at journalistwinkler.com. And she's got a terrific Instagram account you'll want to sign up. I'll put all these links in the show notes, Elizabeth, so people can find you and, of course, get the book. And I think it's great that it's online, but I love seeing a book at the bookseller. There's nothing like seeing it live, right? Today, go get it. Yeah. <laughs> Very good. Well, I guess it's been Elizabeth Winkler, a journalist and a book critic, and now an author of a book, Shakespeare Was a Woman and Other Heresies. It's a, just released from Simon and Schuster. Listeners, come back again next time. We're going to continue these round-the-world travels. Just in our recent episodes, we've been from L.A. to Broadway in New York. We've been from Norway to South Africa. We'll be continuing these creative journeys and stamping our creative passports everywhere to learn how we can get inspired for new ideas, how to organize those ideas, and most of all, how to gain the confidence and the connections to launch our work out into the world. So until next time, I'm Mark Stinson. And we're unlocking your world of creativity. Bye for now. Unlocking your world of creativity with best-selling author and brand innovator, Mark Stinson. This program was produced by BSB Media, creators of IntelliKey Leadership Stories, Unlocking Your World of Creativity, and ThePeaceRoom.love. Our podcast is supported by Adobe and the Adobe Creative Cloud, the world's best creative app and services, so you can make almost anything you can imagine wherever you're inspired. We use Adobe to help make this podcast using Audition, InDesign, and more. So join the creative community with the Adobe Creative Cloud, and let's make something better unlocking your world of creativity.